Hello, I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to the weekly podcast. Thank you for joining us as we explore the exciting advancements in technology-enabled collaboration to excel important drug development. Five Bio seeks to find every cure for every community. We think big as no one should be left behind in the pursuit of living a healthy, happy, and productive life free from disease. We see a future where communities of biopharma experts and patients collaborate to identify high potential medicines and have the ability to access capital on demand to actually develop them. Join us to learn, imagine, question, and help us identify and develop solutions together. Our guest today is Stevie Michelle Klein, Managing Director at Volume One Ventures, which is an early stage venture fund focused on highly regulated industries. Stevie, uh, welcome to the show today. How are you doing? Good. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Likewise. What's your vibe today? How's like, <laughs> how's your, where are you calling us from? And tell us a little bit yeah, about yourself. Yeah. And- so um, I'm in Columbus, Ohio right now, which is not normally where I am. Um, but my family has a dairy farm here in Ohio. Um, I'm currently in a WeWork because uh, infrastructure in rural America kind of sucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but super happy to be here. I, as I told you earlier, my vibe is I'm drinking just a little bit too much caffeine. So this is either going to go really well, or people are going to be like, oh my God, she's on Coke. So <laughs> let's see how this goes. <laughs> Sounds like an exciting uh, conversation. I'm looking yeah, forward to this. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm super happy to have a chat with you on all these fun topics. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll do a little dive into my background and we can kind of go from there. Sure. Um, so yeah, so I actually come into this industry in a really weird way. I started my career um, as an attorney. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was growing up. I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. Um, again, grew up in a dairy farm, thought I would, you know, work on cows for the rest of my life. Um, I kind of still do, but not in that way. Uh, I was in vet school for exactly like an hour, uh, fainted first day. So, you know, uh, when you wake up in admissions and they're like, mm, this might not be for you. And you think, mm, maybe you're right. Uh, so I did not become a veterinarian. I did what every single student in America does when they don't know what to do. And their family is like, you need an advanced degree. I went to law school. Uh, didn't, I, I thought I would still be kind of, the same animal space. I thought I would go into environmental law. Ended up, you know, I, I spent most of my time in law school working on um, a research paper around the whaling industry. I was super passionate about it. Um, so if you ever want to read 300 pages of nonsense about whaling and and fishing in our in our world, I'm happy to share that. Um, but unfortunately, it's kind of interesting. Actually, I was in Iceland recently. And we got to see um, some whale there. And yeah. one thing that struck me uh, was that some of the restaurants were actually serving whale steak. And that's not common. You don't see that in the United States. You um, don't. You don't. Um, I've, I've been to Iceland quite a few times. And it it's... <sighs> I, I try to be very culturally conscious of things just because I'm, I'm also half Japanese and whaling is very different in that culture as well. Um, but I love sea creatures of all shapes, kinds. Um, I volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center in San Francisco um, up in Marin just because I, I do think that 
we've impacted our oceans in like a, just more ways than we even know. And so it's something I'm still really passionate about. Um, obviously I did not go work at Greenpeace. Um, I, that was basically when you're an environmental lawyer and you're like, I wanna work on the ocean. They're like, go work at Greenpeace. Um, it was either that or river keepers. And uh, if you ever, one day I will tell you about my really weird uh, <laughs> RFK junior interview at river keepers. And uh, it, was, it was a weird one. So I did not go work there. I did not go work at Greenpeace because one, you work at Greenpeace, you're on a boat all the time um, and they don't pay you that well. It's basically, I, I could have, you know, worked to, you know, as a phone operator, probably made more. Um, I mean, you're very so well did, educated, right? You said you, you went to law I, school. You also have a PhD in economics. Yes. So, so. I, I, lo I love education because it puts off the one thing in life that most young adults don't want, responsibility. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when I left law school, I didn't, I, you know, I, I, once I saw the salaries of environmental lawyers, I was just like, okay, that's not really going to work for me. <laughs> um, I had kind of an addiction to fancy shoes and uh, I had started to invest in a lot of startups. So I knew that I needed a lifestyle and I needed a salary that supported that. So I ended up getting really involved in tax law because everyone tells you when you're a lawyer, if you want solid secure employment, go be a tax lawyer. It's hundred percent true. Um, I also love tax law. I think taxes, taxes to me are like a little fun game. It's basically like, how do you live your life so that you owe the government the least amount of money, <laughs> um, which is probably not a great way for the government to hear me talk, but it's true. I, I think that, um, you know, I got paid quite a bit of money to keep companies at a really low tax rate. And um, that to me was really fun. Um, I get bored easy. Taxes keep me on my toes. And I also like that there's, you know, there's a way to argue for what you want in tax law in a way that there's not like in the criminal law system, in the civil law system, you can't be like, hey, this is why this should be deductible. Or, like, this is why this isn't illegal. Um, and so I think that's a really good thing about our system that people sometimes forget. Um, as part of that, I ended up working with a lot of really large companies. I ended up working with a ton of startups. I, you know, I did a lot in M&A just because number one consideration usually in M&A is tax law. Um, and I was also at a firm where I was very young and everyone else was fairly old. I, I always like to tell people the story of, you know, working on an M&A around an app and literally seeing my partners look through the papers for an app, like a physical application. And you're like, oh no, mm. we have a problem. <laughs> um, so it's, it's always really, really interesting to see something like that. But that is unfortunately, you know, we're still seeing demographic changes in law. So to see a little bit of crazy things like that happen. Um, I, you know, I loved being a lawyer. Again, I was able to invest in a, a lot of startups from a really young age, just because my salary allowed it. Um, I, you know, I think my company line is I spent all my money as a lawyer on startups and shoes, and that is actually fairly accurate. Um, so one thing, <laughs> my, my closet wishes that was not true. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, sounds like you have many more shoes than I do, which is fine. Uh, I'm right, short, long. so like my whole goal in life is just to be taller. So I just buy shoes that are like as tall as humanly possible. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Um, I, actually, I have a few questions about yeah. one of your startups that you had co-founded, Prenome. Yeah. Um, you want to talk a bit about that and how, you know, what yeah. problems you're trying to solve there <laughs> and then what you accomplished? Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up leaving law just because I had no... I had no life. Uh, I, I started fairly young and got to the point where it's just like, I have 
you know, I don't have a, I don't have a family life. I don't have like hobbies. Um, so I left and I went to work at a, a women's health medical society, got really involved in integrating new technologies into practice there, um, got really involved in genetics. Um, my undergraduate degree was around genetics, but it was more around animal genetics. Again, dairy cows, there's a common thread there. <laughs> so I, you know, I always was thinking about how we could integrate genetics into practice, you know, for, for women's health, just because women's health is kind of abysmal. It's been abysmal for time immemorial. Um, it is what it is, but we are trying to change it. Um, but it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard space to be in just because again, there's not a lot of data. There's not a lot of, um, care given to women, unfortunately. So when I left the medical society, I started a startup that was around, uh, polygenic risk scores for, uh, pregnancy complications. So we were looking at gestational diabetes, postpartum depression, um, you know, preeclampsia, preterm birth, um, those kinds of things, just because I, I do think that we're underusing genetics in, in women's health specifically. Um, it was, it was really interesting when I started the company, I had one, uh, acquisition, uh, opportunity. And it was a company that was like, we'd love to take this technology and use it for erectile dysfunction. And I was just like, okay, that says a lot about women's health right there. <laughs> Anytime someone's like, why don't we have things for women's health? I'm like, literally I had one acquisition, uh, opportunity. And it was, we want to turn this into erectile dysfunction. We want to see if there's a genetic reason men can't get hard. And you're like, I'm trying to yeah. save women's lives, but okay, cool. That seems like quite a pivot there too. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we had an amazing team that was doing really good with polygenic risk scores. They were some of the leaders in the industry. Um, I, I, you know, just because again, my background when I did pivot to healthcare um, is around women's health. I, I Again, I want to see new technologies integrated into healthcare uh, for women specifically. And I do think the, the interesting thing is, you know, historically, women's health is the last place technology ends up in healthcare. Usually it is tried out on men. Um, again, it's easier to do clinical studies on men. I do understand that. But the reality is this lack of, of data around things for women just keeps putting us, you know, behind things. And, and that is kind of a sad thing because women, I mean, women are dying in childbirth at record health. I mean, when you, when you hear people that are just like, I don't believe you, you're like, wow, okay, you really do have your head in the sand. Um, in the United States, we sent, we spend so much money per person on healthcare and we just have the worst outcomes. Um, and I do think personalized medicine, polygenic risk scores, this new era of genetics can really help us, you know, develop new therapeutics. I'm thinking about all the possibilities around CRISPR. Um, but again, like we have, we also have an education problem in America because a lot of people don't know what these things mean. Um, I was just talking to someone in, in rural Ohio about CRISPR and they were like, oh, that's, I don't want to do that. And I was like, why? And they literally think it has something to do with cloning. I'm like, what the hell? CRISPR um, babies, maybe? That's like, evidently. That's like... I'm, I'm down for a CRISPR baby. I could I could see what happens. Um, but it's, it's really sad. It's to, an ethical to conversation see. there too. I, I have many, I have many thoughts on, on genetics and, and ethics, but I do think that when you, when you have the conversation with people and they don't even understand the basic technology that is going For to sure. be standard of care in 10, 15 years, that's a problem. Um, 
it's kind of where the genetics industry is now. It's kind of where some of the therapeutics ended up. Um, there's just a lack of understanding, a lack of clarity. And if, if even doctors don't know what they're prescribing or what they're working with, it, you end up with a huge problem because that's what ends up causing things to cost more. It's what ends up, then you end up in an inequity conversation and it's just kind of, it spirals. And I think we see it routinely in the United States with healthcare. Yeah, and like just thinking about these biotechnology technologies, uh, they're ha- they're evolving so quickly, and it's sort of interesting because they usually start up in academic labs, and then sort of you see them move into corporations and then companies and startups. Um, and you worked at the John Hopkins Tech Transfer Office, right? So you want to yeah, talk a little so bit I worked, about that? Yeah, so I worked at Johns Hopkins. Um, that was that was in my interim in between uh, ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the law office I worked at. Um, I I left because Johns Hopkins has some amazing technology they work on. Um, obviously, you know APL is is a great place. They um, they they're just putting out technology that. Not everyone knows about, but everyone is probably using. Um, one of the things that I ended up, okay, so I, I went to Johns Hopkins because I was like, I fell in love with Baltimore. Um, I fell in love with the teams there. Um, I knew a ton of them because they they were actually one of my clients when I was a lawyer. And so um, when I went to Hopkins, um, a lot of it is, you know, they raise money from the technologies that they're building and they look at, you know, who's good purchasers, um, ended up spending a lot of time in China, um, just because, you know, they also have a, a campus in China and we were doing a lot of work on development and trying to kind of make sure we could get money for that, that campus as well. So I ended up spending six months out of each year in China, um, between Beijing, Shanghai and Hong Kong. Um, I loved it. But again, I, it didn't get me any closer to getting one of those life things. Right. Um, but it really did teach me a lot. Um, being in China is really interesting because you would see technologies that would take probably five to 10 years to hit a physician's office in the United States, basically take three months to go from acquisition or final development phases into a physician's office there. Um, what do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Is there like more regulation in the United States or do they just do things faster in China, you think? Yeah, I mean, it's partly, so there's a lot of political reasons for it, but there's also um, regulatory differences. Um, you know, one thing I think a lot of people aren't really aware of is pretty much most companies in China um, have a fairly, they're, they're fairly integrated with, you know, the government there. And so if the government wants something, they'll get it done. Um, so it's a little bit different from how we we operate in the United States. Um, I know some people think that that's a bad thing. Some people think it's a good thing. I'm not going to say either way, but it's just an interesting difference. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about China is um, a lot of people don't really understand IP differences. So I would I would be in China and I would see basically the exact same product that I knew was on the market in the United States. Um, and you end up looking at like the IP and people just had no idea that China was even a market that could copy or could replicate what they were doing. Um, so I always tell my my. <laughs> portfolio companies now I'm like the minute you hit the market with something China's going to be doing it so figure out how to how to limit that um and how you're going to kind of sell overseas almost immediately especially in like the biotech space um I, I worked a ton with you know teams from Illumina when I was at ACOG and you know they had a pretty decent presence in Asia but the other thing is they were really worried about people popping up with you know 
similar technologies. Um, obviously, Illumina is a, a leader in the space, and you know they don't want that to happen. Um, but I, I always use that as an example of like if Illumina struggles with it, your startup that has four people is probably going to struggle even more with it. So Stevie, I think we're almost twenty minutes in and still on your intro, which means you've just done so much. <laughs> Uh, in, your, oh God. in your career so <laughs> that far. That makes it seem like I like talking about myself, which is not actually true. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's really fascinating, actually. And I think it's important <laughs> to lay out this background of yours so we can start talking about uh, your fund and like what yeah. you're working on with Volume 1 Ventures. I just want to also make sure the audience is aware that you're also a, you used to be or currently are a crypto lawyer as well. So you have some yeah. like, connections with the blockchain space as well. Do you want to kind yeah. of like, touch on that? Yeah, I can, I can talk about that a little bit. So um, I was a, I was a part of the first crypto litigation team, uh, again, because taxes hit everything. Yay. Um, so at my firm, I ended up doing that also because I have a, I have a PhD in economics, which I got because I was going into tax law. So no, it's all somewhat connected. Um, but do know a little bit too much about crypto. It's it's kind of interesting. Um, I you know when we shut down our company, um, when we when we shut down Prenome, I actually took six months off from healthcare and I went back to crypto because I was like, I don't know many industries that are the polar opposite of healthcare. Crypto is one. So I spent six months you know just doing everything and anything in crypto just because it was something I was familiar with. It's something I think is valuable. Um, I think it's also something that's terribly misunderstood um, or taken advantage of by people who are just like trying to pump and dump. What so, do you think is the like the most misunderstood thing about blockchain or crypto? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the biggest misunderstanding is a lot of people think it's a new technology. It's new-ish, but I, I mean, we use blockchain in different levels for the past like 20 years, pretty much. So it's not that new. Um, we are still early though. So I do understand that. I just think the biggest thing is there's a lot of possibilities of what we can be doing with it, but most people are only really thinking about how can I make the most money and just get in and out. And that's not how this works. Um, there's yeah. also a lot of similarities between crypto and kind of how we, you know, as a country started our own treasury. So I always tell people like, there's a lot of parallels. And so be thoughtful of that. Um, you can't basically walk down the same road and be like, huh, how did our treasury get started? And why are there all these laws and regulations? It's like, because the exact same thing happened hundreds of years ago. Um, so yes, I do have that for a, I maybe have done just a little bit more of that than I, I think people realize, and I think that's for a good reason. I, I think, you know, for me, I'm more of an advocate of it for the people who can use that technology. Um, so yeah, it's it's a weird, weird part of my career that if you knew me in 2008, you were like, oh yes, TV holds Bitcoin. And they were like, what the hell is that? <laughs> um, and my, my first Bitcoin was actually given to me by one of my clients. <laughs> he was just like, hey, like, can I pay you in Bitcoin? And I was like, I don't know, man, you're going to have to, you're going to have to talk to my firm about that. And we worked out a deal. I got paid in Bitcoin, forgot about it for a good, I forgot about it until 2015. Um, oh. I found my key and I was like, oh, that's nice. That's a nice little <laughs> it was, it was, Yeah. And the funny thing is the client that gave it to me was probably in 80, I think he was 85 or 89. He was an older guy who was just into weird stuff. So his, his name wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, it was right? Not, it was not. <laughs> it was actually um, a gentleman who owned a farm in Ohio. So okay. 
<laughs> so when I say random, I mean really random. Gotcha. Um, I'm pretty sure he was one of the people who like buries their money like in the ground. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, I think that there was like a, a finding in, I don't know if it was Kentucky or something like a bunch of gold coins were recently found. Um, anyway, so that was me. That was me. Oh, yeah. going, oh, God, I found it. Um, yeah. So I have done a lot. I have done way more than I think a lot of people realize. I also from the Midwest. So yeah, I don't like talking to myself. I don't like, I'm, I'm pretty humble. And I think that's something that one is really hard now that I'm trying to raise a fund. People are like, what have you done? And I'm like, oh my God, I need to brag about so no. tell us about this fun, the fund that you're, you're uh, raising for and yeah. how much are you trying to raise? What are some of the challenges? Yeah. yeah. So Volume One Ventures is an early stage fund. We're doing, you know, pre-seed, seed up to series A. Um, we try and be the first check-in. That's really important to me because we are focused on regulated industries. So what that means is things that are super duper regulated. So healthcare, biotechs, fintechs, crypto. Um, I don't think we'll invest too much in crypto before I get a ton of people who are like, look at my crypto company. Probably not. Um, I'm actually a really hard judge on crypto. So you probably don't even want me to look at your company. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, that's we, good to we hear. Do, yeah. <laughs> Compared to some of what we've seen in the last couple of years, but yeah. Yeah, we do a ton of food and beverage as well. Um, a lot of CPG. I used to say I was not a CPG investor until uh, my accountant told me that is incorrect. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's a good gauge of that, it turns out. But, you know, we really are looking for things that are, are really highly regulated. We just think that's where our value add is. Um the main reason for that being my my background um, in terms of being a lawyer that's worked in regulated spaces. I have really deep relationships with a lot of agencies and, and leaders there. Um, fund is also a registered lobbyist. So we want to really make sure we're getting the right narrative in front of politicians quick so that we don't actually end up with kind of the same situation that happened to crypto happening for things like AI, um, where you're basically on the, the, the defense and there's already a narrative created and you just kind of have to hope that what you're saying gets through. That's just not the way to do things for new technologies. Um, things like defense, things like AI, that's really important. Um, you know, so, also I think, in, oh no, go ahead. Yeah. So in these like regulated, tightly regulated uh, companies or like spaces, uh, are there any recommendations you have for startups that are doing work like in AI, for example, um, yeah. or even in biotech, any recommendations, yeah. recommendations you have for them to increase their probability of success? My first, okay, so my first thing that I always tell people in spaces is talk to a lawyer. Um, the amount of times that I get pitched and I'm the first lawyer they've ever talked to is kind of concerning. Um, if you know something's a regulated industry, please, for the love of God, talk to a lawyer because you might end up like people get so far down the pathway and then they're, they find out, you know, series A, series B up to like IPO, even they find out that they've just screwed the pooch completely. Um, that's really concerning. And it also sets not just them, but the industry up for failure long-term. Um, so you do have to basically, you don't necessarily have to do what that lawyer says, but you need to be aware of it. You need to be aware of what's going on. Um, in biotechs, I talk to so many people and they're just like, oh, we actually aren't regulated by the FDA. That's Because they're like a technology company? Or yeah, they'll be like, oh, we're software. And I'm like, software is still regulated. Um, you know, if there's, I, I, I like to tell people that, especially in healthcare, if what you're doing touches a patient, a patient uses it, 
if it can hurt someone, it can lead someone to make the wrong decision for their health, it's probably regulated in some way by the FDA. And if you're not having a conversation or preparing for a conversation, or you're not doing studies to limit bad things that can happen to patients, you know, that's an incorrect statement. Um, I, I think also you talk to a ton of VCs in this area and they're like, we don't do anything in, oh, if, if the FDA touches it, we don't touch it then I don't really know what you're doing in healthcare <laughs> because I mean, especially in this day and age, the FTA is getting tighter and tighter with their restrictions and also broader. Um, so all those loopholes that people think they're having, they're going to close really quick. Um, I, I also think that, you know, you can only lobby against regulations in healthcare or food and beverage for so long before something really bad happens. And the industry tightens so much in a regulatory space that, you know, if you're, if you think that's not going to happen, that's just not realistic um, because there are bad actors and bad actors in healthcare kill people. It's a great point. And thanks for sharing that. So, so, you know, you mentioned the importance of these companies, biotech companies working with regulators. Um, how soon should they start? And you said, talk to a lawyer basically immediately. But I talk do, to a lawyer immediately. Yeah. I mean, do they have to also work with the FDA as soon as they can as well? And I really think the- that's true. I don't, I, I know there's also a, a lot of people who are of the school of, Hey, as soon as we talk to the FDA, their eyes are on us. I don't, I, and I, I, I do understand that it's the same way um, in fintechs and anything to do with finance. They're like, we don't want to talk to the SEC because then they're just going to put a microscope over it. Um, understand that. But I do think if you are talking to patients and you've not even had a conversation with someone at the FDA or they're, they don't know you exist, that's a bad thing because what will happen is as soon as a patient, you know, doesn't have a good experience and things hit the news or you don't want, you don't want the FDA to have their first time hearing about you be in a negative light. Um, So, I mean, that's, and that's true for all regulators. So you do, it's a fine line, but you do have to figure out the point of like, okay, well, we're starting to take patients information or we're starting to do something that's more forward facing. Um, that is something you need to be aware of. I always tell people, if you're applying for government grants, you probably need to be talking to the FDA or at least had a conversation with someone there um, because that information does get shared. Um, the government does not operate in silos quite the way everyone thinks. Um, so I, I've seen it before where people apply for an SBIR grant and someone's like, hey, does this sound right? And the FDA is like, you're doing what? Uh, no please don't do that. Um, and, and I think also if you're not in, it's, it's a different from something that's being incubated in like an academic setting, just because those are a little different. That's more research oriented. But if you're at the point where it's commercial, um, you've got a pitch deck that you're sending to VCs, you, you need to have that tightened up or at least know what the plan is in the near future to kind of work with regulators. Um, and, and the thing is, like, even if you don't have the money to talk to a lawyer, the FDA has pretty much everything. It's, it's all publicly available. So there's no reason for you not to at least have read some of the stuff. Um, and I, I, I tell people, assume everything is about you. Don't assume you're the exception. <laughs> you get a lot of people that are like, well, this says software and technically. And you're like, let's just assume you're not that. <laughs> let's just go with that. Have you seen any... Uh, similarities or differences between the Chinese uh, regulatory agency 
for food and drug versus the American? And do you think the FDA, do you think there's sort of learnings or something that we could learn from the Chinese to help our process and vice versa, maybe too? Yeah. I I mean, I think the, the most interesting thing about China and what I saw there is doctors tend to be very open to new technologies there versus here in the United States. And I think this is actually, this is more cultural problem. Um, Just because we do have such a heavy regulatory load, a lot of doctors are like, if it hasn't been to the FDA, it hasn't been here, if it hasn't had 20,000 people in the study, if it hasn't, there's a real reluctance. And I do understand that, especially with the malpractice like industry here in the United States. I totally get why doctors are reticent to just put something in front of their patients or or do something with their patients that could be really harmful. Um, But I do think that just goes to how we educate doctors. Um, A lot of residency programs are really poorly funded. Um, A lot of medical schools are poorly funded. A lot of doctors just enter practice not having a lot of -of state-of-the-art education. And that's kind of a problem here in the United States. Um, I I do understand that also the flip of that is you have doctors who are really, you know, educated in innovative technologies, and then they end up in rural America and they're like, I I don't have laparoscopy available. And you're like, no, you have surgical techniques. Um, So there's a flip of that. But I think, unfortunately, um, from what I saw in China, they really do stress, you know, learning new technologies and being open to new technologies, um, which is just not really the same that we do here in America. Um, I think also partly because, you know, we do have practice guidelines and payers that really do impact how things come to market in the United States. There's a lot more people involved in decision-making. Um, and it, it tends to be a lot more unbiased than what people think. Whereas in China, it's, it's fairly, most people know if something should be in the market or if someone, a greater power that be is saying, get this in the market. And I think, um, you know, having a highly politicized way of getting things in healthcare isn't necessarily always the best, but it does get things done. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I feel like this is saying this is going to bite me in the butt one day, but I do think, you know, we don't necessarily have that in America. Like politicians don't say like, hey, everyone in America should have a genetic test. Whereas I feel like in other nations, that is true, could be for some some reasons that we don't wanna know about, or we would prefer not be the reasons. Um, but that's not always the case. Like it's, it's kind of a good thing sometimes. Yeah, no, I see that. Um, striking that balance, the correct balance of that is really yeah. the challenge, right? And that's what makes you know America different right uh, culturally it's, it's a very different it's, it's a different experiment than it's a totally different experiment and and the funny thing is is you know i asia is such a, a unique place because it's so innovation forward um i i think we, we we think we're innovation forward here in the united states but until you spend significant time in asia you you really do see that that is not the case um it, it's it's kind of funny when you you go overseas and you're like, oh my God, that's so cool. Why don't we have it? And then there are things that like I saw in China that are just now becoming new technologies. And you're like, that you was know, five years ago. <laughs> well, one thing I don't understand. So I, I come from, um, from Turkey and uh, in the Middle East. And one technology that I don't understand why Americans don't use more often is a simple bidet in the toilet. I think <laughs> that should be everywhere. I don't understand why we don't have that. I have one in my. Uh, oh my god! I'm <laughs> every like I'm 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 very confused by this, especially when you have people that are like, I care about trees, and I'm just like, yeah. 
like, do y'all not understand this? And it's, I, yeah, we're the first time, you, you know, all my friends that are American who like live in Ohio, the first time they travel to Europe and they're like, oh, I saw a bidet. And I'm like, you realize everyone in every country besides the United States has this. And we're just like, huh. Well, not every country, but yeah, many other countries. Especially many other Europe. countries have yeah. them. It's, yeah. we, we definitely have this. It's something that just Americans need to be really conscious of is we have this like thought that we are the leaders in everything. And I'm like, y'all are not even the leaders in bidet use. So <laughs> I need you to just really think about that and just, just kind of have some sense of self-understanding. So I'm with you. Oh um, I'm going to ask you to put away your regulatory hat for a minute and put on your investor hat. And <laughs> I'm going to ask you, how is the current economic environment affecting deal flow and investments into early stage biotech? Yeah, I, I, I actually think this is a good time for biotechs. Um, I think there was a little bit of a bubble during COVID, um, which was kind of interesting. Um, we saw every company in biotech deciding that somehow they could do something with, with COVID. Um, it was kind of unfortunate. You saw just a lot of pivots that I don't think made a lot of sense, but I do think we're back to kind of some stability being there. I think the other thing is, you know, biotechs had really reasonable valuations because of that. So I think we're going to see a lot less down rounds and in, in really good biotechs, um, which I think is really important. I think that investors in biotech stayed in biotech. You didn't see the, like in crypto, you saw like all the crypto investors are now AI investors. And you're just like, you don't know shit about either. Please stop. <laughs> Um, like you just didn't see that in biotech. You didn't see people going, I'm a biotech person. I don't know anything about crypto. I'm going to go be a crypto person now, or now I'm in AI. It's a lot more stable. It's a lot more steady. So investors that are in this space are really in this space. And I think that is something that people should really be aware of. Um, the greater economy you are, unfortunately, you know, I will, I will put on my, like my economy reading hat right now. And I'll just say like, the reality is the economy is not great. Um, we have some some forward signals that, you know, I think for the past couple of years, we've all been like, these don't seem good. They're not. Um, I think the reality is just tech as a bubble is kind of popping. Um, and I do think that that unfortunately impacts, you know, cash available. You know, if capital kind of goes down because the stock market goes down, there's not as much LP money. There's not enough, as much VC money. Um, you start to see more leaning on government grants. You start to lean more on partnerships with, you know, big pharma or big biotech companies. Um, you start to see more mergers and acquisitions um, in this space. And, and those are all okay things. Um, those are just kind of symptoms of the economy as, as it is. Um, I think that you know, there is a slowdown. And so we're raising right now, as you mentioned earlier, we're raising $30 million for our fund. And there is a slowdown in terms of LPs, like LPs have been burnt by venture. And I'm an LP in other funds. And I'll say I've been burnt by venture. So, um, you know, I totally understand it. But the reality is, um, you know, some LPs are just not going to invest in, in venture anymore. Um, and I think, you know, some a couple of my mentors have said, you know, don't try and convince someone that VC is an asset class is something worth investing in. If someone's been burnt, they're probably not going to invest, move on. Um, and I think also, you know, that means you're spending more time trying to find the right LPs, um, 
which again, LP money is really what drives VC funding. So I, I think for biotechs, they do have to expect, unfortunately, you know, due diligence and things like that already takes a lot of time for biotech startups. I think you're looking at even more time, you know, for your raises. Um, I think the era of we're going to do a, a timed, you know, one month raise, that's just unfortunately not going to work. There's still really good firms that are deploying in biotech um, <clears throat> that I would, you know, recommend anyone look at that I think are, are amazing. Um, but again, I think there's also some biotech firms that are, are taking their time and, and they are having to kind of re-up their, their capital a little bit just because, you know, we did have a couple of bubbles in biotech. Interesting. Uh, what kind of characteristics do you look for in founders of early stage Biotechs. Yeah, so this is actually really interesting because I think biotechs is, is pretty unique. Um, I, if I'm looking at a founder of a biotech, I do really want to see that they understand the science they're talking about. Um, I don't want to see that someone was a PM at Uber and they are deciding to get into CRISPR. That is not going to work. Um, that's just, that's not going to work. Um, so I think really looking at either an academic background or a, a work background that is in the same area is really important. Um, I do also look to make sure that they really care about patients first. If you think a founder is in biotech for money, one, they're gonna be angry really quick. And two, if, they are, if they're not thinking about how they're gonna help patients, they're gonna end up doing something that will get them in trouble. Um, and that, you know, I always say my goal as an investor is I don't wanna see any of my founders in jail. If one of my founders goes to jail, that's the worst. <laughs> that's just, terrible. Don't let that happen. Um, and so for me, I, I really do think about, you know, are they responsible? Are they going to put patients first? Are they going to understand that if the FDA is like, hey, stop doing this, that's serious, but it's not the end all be all. You can pivot, you can do different things. Um, are they going to have the capacity to run a clinical trial? Are they going to have the capacity to, to stick with it? Because biotech, you know, not all biotechs, you know, exit within 10 years, you are looking at 10, 15, 20 years for things that are, you know, in pharmaceuticals, things like that. Um, it's just a lot longer sales pipeline. It's just a lot longer development pipeline. Um, I, so, I mean, yeah, for me, it's that academic kind of understanding. It's also just the seriousness of it, like taking it seriously. Um, anytime you have a startup where people can get hurt, if something goes wrong and they don't understand that, that's usually a pass for me. Um, and, and I've seen that a ton, not just in biotech. You're kind of like, hey, but what if this happens? And they're like, oh yeah, that would never happen. And you're like, like it's kind of like how whenever you have a gaming company, it always ends up with people drawing penises and they're like, what? How did that happen? And you're like, they're they're 16 year old boys. How did you not accept like, duh. Um, and, and so like, you do have to like expect human behavior. Humans are actually pretty predictable. So if you're entering your startup and you're like, that would never happen. That's, that's usually a red flag for me. Um, yeah. I, I, and I think also, I, I think being a first time biotech founder is really, really hard as someone who did it. Um, biotechs making the first, making your first startup a biotech is really hard because you have so much stacked against you. And also again, like there's so many balls to keep in the air. And so I, the more I, I look at, at startups that are, are pitching me in the biotech space, the more impressed I am by people that this is their like second or third startups and they've learned their lesson on something that is not as complicated and complex as a biotech company or a, a pharmaceutical company. Yeah. And I think today 
you know, there are many more resources for first-time founders in biotech. 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, it's way more, it would be way more difficult to get one, you know, off the ground. Yeah. There, there's so much more, there's so many more resources. Um, but again, like also because of the economy, some of those resources are going away. I mean, for example, when, when I was, when I was a founder, SVB was a wonderful resource. SVB has gone the way of, you know, the Dodo bird. And, you know, I, I was a part of a luminous accelerator, which has also changed. And so the space is contracting a little bit. And I think that's something where, I, I do predict that we're, we're going to see more people come from the academic background, um, which means they, they're just going to need to have more of a conscious effort given around the go-to-market and the business side of things. So I think as long as the team has thought that through and there's someone who excels in that, that makes a lot of sense. So what are some of the critical inflection points that can make or break an early stage biotech company in your view? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it really is that first decision around like, what is your clinical trial look like? What is, what's your IRB say? What is, what's the actual development of your study? Um, and, and I say that, and the amount of times I talk to people that are like, we're not doing a study and I'm just like, oh, oh no. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna back away slowly, but Spoiler. anyone in healthcare. Yeah. Just like oh, that, like Homer meme from the Simpsons where he just goes into the bush. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, everyone in healthcare should be, should be doing some kind of patient, you know, facing study. Um, and that's something I, I really do take really seriously. And I think the development of that, how you're, how you're doing it, how you're working with patients, how you're recruiting patients, that's always really important. Um, and I, I understand that studies are hard, studies are expensive, but studies are very, very necessary, especially in women's health, where for the longest time, women weren't able to participate in studies. Like that is data that is really important. Um, so I really look for people who are, are really taking that seriously and thinking through what the study phase looks like. Um, yeah. And I, I just think, you know, that that makes or breaks you, just the development of that study, because um, a poorly put together study will ruin you. Um, you won't get the data points. The FDA will decline you. You'll end up in trouble with something. I mean, and that's happened at major corporations. I mean, the amount of times you see big pharmaceutical companies go before the you know, FDA and the FDA is like, your data sucks. And you're like, well, your data is actually good if you had done your clinical trial correctly. Um, and that's really hard to see because that's happened a few times in women's health. And you're just like, you, you, you need to, you're, you need to diversify your patient study. Like, what are you doing? Like you gave the, the FDA all white women and you're like, yes, yeah. this works. And you like, mentioned women's health a few times, actually. I'm wondering if you've heard of Athena Dow. It's a Dow for women's reproductive health. Yeah. 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 I have. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a couple of things like that. Um, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Dow. Okay. Um, and it's not, I, I'm not saying it's anything about this Dow. I, I just think that, you know, I love that in America, we constantly try and think of new ways to do things. I love that. Love it. Um, I just don't necessarily think healthcare is the way to do it. So <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it's still early on for, for DAOs and blockchain in general. So like hard to tell, um, but I understand how it could be uh, a stretch with the infrastructure we have now to make. Yeah, I think that's successful. it. It's it's more like we just don't have the infrastructure that supports DAOs and healthcare. Um, or in, in most I, industries, actually. Most industries. Yeah. But I think the, also the thing is, um, when you're looking at healthcare, there's a lot of HIPAA things. There's a lot of patient, you know, privacy. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that I think, unfortunately, DAOs 
sometimes too many cooks in the kitchen is not necessarily a good thing mm. in healthcare. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know that we all need to be having this conversation about this. Yeah, it's kind of similar to the comparison we made with uh, China and the US in terms of the regulatory, um, yeah. how they make decisions. I have one more question and then we will sort of have any final takeaways for the audience. So what kind <laughs> of specific technologies do you see making the biggest impact on human health in the next few years? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I I think that the biggest technologies that I, I don't think I, I, a lot of people are going to say software. I don't think software and healthcare is going to I don't think it's going to do shit. I'm sorry. Um, not in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, there's a lot of companies that develop things and, and they're like, yay, we're going to change the EHR. We're going to change the AMOC. Like, I love y'all. Love it. But I think sometimes you have to kind of develop companies and technologies with what is on the table. And right now, I don't see that changing anytime soon. That is much more a political decision that is not going to be changing anytime soon. Uh, payers have plenty of money to lobby, please don't build technologies thinking that you're going to change it. Um, it's just, this is an area where that's a hard, hard road. Um, so I do think we're looking at more of the things that are coming out of academic settings in terms of technologies around therapeutics, um, thinking about who is, you know, actually building things, not just for rare diseases, but things that have really been overlooked. Um, you know, I, I think about therapeutics as a really exciting area, but I also think we're going to see therapeutics hit the market quicker. I think that's really exciting. I think co the COVID era gave us one thing, and that is pathways to get therapeutics in the hands of patients quicker. Um, so I'm really bullish on, on some unique therapeutics. I'm really bullish on seeing personalized medicine. I know a lot of people, it ebbs and flows, but I do think more and more people are, are coming to terms with the fact that, you know, you can get a test from Grail, you can get a test from your doctor and be like, okay, I need to make changes to my life. I need preventative care. And the more patients drive that preventative care, just like conversation, the more doctors are going to, are going to require it. And I think doctors are really how you make inroads with payers. If doctors are saying like, I need to do this, this is, this is the standard of care. Um, that's something that's really exciting, but that does mean we're going to have to see costs come down. Um, and so, you know, we all know that as new technologies come, come in, costs will come down. Um, I think a lot of the genetic testing and, you know, the things that are coming down to really affordable amounts, that's really good because that does take payers out of the conversation when payers say it's too expensive. So I'm not going to do it. Um, you know, there's the, the saddest part about healthcare in America is we do have so much inequity just because people can pay out of pocket and have the best care. Um, and people in other areas with, you know, different socioeconomic situations, they just don't get that. Um, and that's, that's the biggest problem. That's why we see the outcomes that we have. So, you know, the technology is declining in cost is going to be really exciting to see. Yeah, I'm excited for that too. I think, um, you know, seeing the costs come down, making it more accessible for everyone to, to use or to take advantage of, it's an essential part of living in a society together, I think. And uh, otherwise, you're gonna have a lot of people who have and the have nots. And we don't really, we've seen that in history. And I think that's something that we could we can avoid by playing yeah. it smart it doesn't, I think. It, in some yeah. ways i mean you're never going to do it totally but there are lots of ways actions that yeah. we can take to prevent some of that the, yeah there are some no-brainer you know actions that we can take and there's some decisions that are just purely honestly really stupid that we've made um 
but I, I, I think, you know, hopefully we'll see inequity start to change because I think there's only so many bad things that can hit the press about like our healthcare in America before people like you're like, oh shit. Um, but every time we're like, hey, this is this is a new thing causing everyone to die, or this is how bad our healthcare is now versus, you know, I saw I saw data once, it was a couple of years ago, and it was around um women dying in childbirth now versus women dying in childbirth when the United States of America started. And people were shocked. They were like, so you're telling me we're because everyone assumes like women died in childbirth all the time back in the day turns out we have that now um and, and I think you know you can shock people and you can shock people they'll start to kind of lose interest in that shock factor but the reality is after a certain point like if you're like well the new you know average age of death is 50 there's only there's only so much you can do that will go oh okay I should probably change I'd be a little concerned yeah <laughs> right um, like you can only get the bottom so many times Exactly. Well, Stevie, this has been a very exciting conversation. I'm really happy that you joined me today. We learned a lot about the regulatory space for biotech, uh, you know, your background in law and your experience as a founder and investor. So I just want to talk about whales. So, talk about whales. I'm happy. Uh, But we talked about bidets as well. So I'm really, really happy to have had this time with you. I I feel like everyone that knows me is going to be like, yes, that's a typical conversation with her. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? (laughs) I mean, I feel like that was a pretty broad conversation. So I think we, I think we did good. Okay. Awesome. Um, very, you know, you're welcome to come back anytime. So really appreciate it. And uh, thanks. thanks everyone for listening, subscribe, like, share, please. And uh, catch you next time. Thanks. <laughs> See ya.